A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. We're also joined from New York by our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan. And his guest there has been Ken Reese, the chief executive of Elevate, the subprime lender. We've also been talking through a City UK conference here in London to Mark Hoban and Baroness Faulkner. This week, we'll be talking about Deutsche Bank and a potential change at the top. Also, three reasons to be cheerful about Brexit. And finally, that interview that Ben McClanahan has done in the US with uh, Elevate, the subprime lender that went public a year ago. First, though, Martin, to Deutsche Bank and uh, the long-running rumours about John Cryan's tenure at the helm of Germany's biggest bank um, have resurfaced. We hear talk of informal approaches being made to potential external successors. What are you hearing exactly? Yeah, so I think this is being driven by a strategic disagreement um, and debate that is happening right now at Deutsche Bank about the future of its investment banking business, basically, which is um, still the bulk of the uh, group um, at at Germany's biggest bank. And the uh, difference of opinion is really one on 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 timing and and how aggressive to be in shrinking the balance sheet of the investment banking business, which is still one of the largest in the world in terms of risk-weighted assets and capital that it absorbs. And the, and the reason the bank needs to do something is that the capital requirements on it are increasing on, on in several areas because of the Basel, uh, so-called Basel IV reforms. So they can see the problem. And also the bank is just not generating enough of a return on equity to make it you know, a long-term viable business. It needs to generate a higher return on, on equity. And um, so the, the difference of opinion is between the chairman of the supervisory board, Paul Ackleitner, uh, and the chief executive um, and, and chairman of the management board, John Cryan. John Cryan is very businessman-like. He's, he's analysed this problem in depth. He knows what he wants to do. He wants to get on with shrinking the balance sheet uh, of the investment bank. But uh, the strategy that he's pursued so far has been one of cost-cutting and also uh, a sort of hair-shirt approach to bonuses, and that's really hurt the investment banking franchise um the revenues have, have been have been shrinking in in several areas of that business it's really losing market share and that's causing a lot of alarm among big shareholders and questions as to whether john cryan is really the right uh, person to be to be leading this business and whether the aggressive shrinkage strategy that seems to be pursuing and plans to pursue even further is the right one um paul ackleitner is hearing 
other people on the supervisory board questioning that um, strategy, questioning whether Crian's the right person. So he is putting out, I hear, very informal feelers to people he knows very well. I mean, Paul Ackleitner knows everybody in European banking. He's ex-Goldman Sachs. He um, he picks up the phone regularly and talks to other banking CEOs. And I think he's just sounded out a few people. One person we heard that he sounded out very informally is uh, Jean-Pierre Moustier, the Frenchman who's running Italy's biggest bank, Unicredit, very, um, you know, experienced investment banker, um, doing a great job at Unicredit, according to, to, to most people. Um, but I don't think there's really any interest for Jean-Pierre Moustier to move at this time. And, and this is part of the problem that Deutsche has, um, is who really wants this job, because uh, Deutsche is in a very difficult position. And there's, there's a lot of tough decisions that need to be made. Yes, it was hard enough last time round when Paul Achleitner was looking for a replacement for Anshu Jain back three or four years ago. And then, interestingly, he came up with a plan to bring a number of his most trusted banking contacts onto the supervisory board with him. John Crime was one of those. At that point, he invited Jean-Pierre Moustier to come on, uh, which didn't work. He also invited Bill Winters, who was being lined up as the chief executive of Standard Chartered at the time, who also declined and who, who knows, may may now be a name back in the frame again. We, we haven't been able to establish whether that's true or not. Um, but certainly, if it didn't work back in 2014, 2015, it's even less likely to work now, given the plight that Deutsche is still in just look at the share price. So this is one to watch quite closely. And I think a key juncture in this whole affair is the AGM, which is coming up in May. And we are told that shareholders want to see some kind of movement on that. Yeah. And the annual meetings in the past at Deutsche have been pretty fiery affairs. Um, Shareholders have not held back from expressing their discontent. And given that uh, Deutsche Bank effectively issued a profits warning just last week at the Morgan Stanley banking conference in London and sent its shares down some 10%. That is going to get shareholders sharpening their knives for the board, for Ackleitner, for Cryon. And I think that they would very much like to have something that they can come to that or ahead of that to head off some of that criticism. But they need to make a decision quickly because I think um, the longer they spend procrastinating, the, the, the more time they're using up and the, the more credibility they're using up. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. Let's move on to our second topic for the day, which is look at Brexit. And Martin, you have just written a piece due to be published on Tuesday about three reasons to be cheerful on Brexit from the uh, City of London's point of view anyway. And it also follows a conference that we were both at on Monday organised by City UK, at which were were a number of speakers, including the former City Minister Mark Hoban, who chairs one of the uh, city's regulatory lobby groups, the IRSG, uh, and also Baroness Faulkner, who is the head of one of the parliamentary Brexit-related committees. And they uh, both made some quite positive pronouncements about the outlook for Brexit. Let's hear uh, what each of those had to say, first of all. There has to be consistency uh, here, uh, and I think mutual regulatory recognition is the model that actually meets the needs of both the EU27 and the UK in the best way. No one has produced a more detailed set of alternative proposals to ours. People want to talk about reviews, but where's the substance of it? 
you know, if you look at the, the depth of thinking that there is in the RSG's work, you can see we thought about this very clearly. We thought all, about all aspects of how it would work uh, in practice. Uh, and I don't think there's a, an, an alternative out there that I've seen that matches that depth and actually enables both the UK and U27 to achieve what they want to achieve. Will there be a deal on financial services? I do think there will be, irrespective of the difficult noises coming out of Brussels. And I think the nearer we get to it, the more it will become apparent. I mean, you know, I'm travelling to other capitals as well. And for example, when I go, I went to Poland recently and I spoke to them about capital markets, securitization, the impact of fragmentation of the industry. And this, I think, came as a genuine surprise. So the one other point I would make to people in the room, that as you're speaking to, as you're thinking of licensing and subsidiarization, delegation, you do need to also lobby member states' governments. Because in the, in the countries that aren't up for financial services, there doesn't seem to be a knowledge of the cost of fragmentation for consumers and for them of what fragmentation will really mean. And on that basis, can I publicise one company's report that I thought was particularly good, and this is PwC's recent report, not just on impact on the UK, but the impact of loss of mutual market access in financial services across the EU27. And this gives a really good picture, so I would you know, suggest people read it. Um, in terms, I'd just like to pick up one or two points that Hilary Wren has made. Um, deal on financial services, yes, but one of the interesting things, what will it look like? And I have seen the chapters that Mr Barnier himself initiated in terms of TTIP, the proposal for TTIP. And I've spoken to people in the US, and you know the, the general story, this is an extremely detailed piece of work. I've spoken to people in the US who explain why they didn't proceed with it. And the explanation I've been given was that this came, you know, 2011, 2012, on the back of the Eurozone financial crisis, Portugal, Italy, Spain, uh, the, Greece, of course, was the factor. And the US was really concerned at the time, American regulators at the time were really concerned about importing this risk into the American system, which is why they decided not to proceed with it. They didn't veto it. It was parked for later on in terms of discussions with TTIP. When you challenge the bureaucracy in Brussels about why they wouldn't give the UK the same deal, the answer, or a similar deal, the answer you get back is that when you challenge them in terms of that example, their answer is, well, that was never serious. Yes, we did go into quite a lot of detail, but we never expected to, to have to go proceed with that deal. <laughs> I, you know, I've said what I candidly think about um, <laughs> to them. <laughs> oh, I am known for my candor, um, including with Mr. Barnier, uh, who, who's always slightly surprised that a liberal is taking, as he would see it, a nationalistic line. It's not a nationalistic line because, as I've said, I refer to the costs for European consumers in what I'm saying. The Germans, incidentally, don't see it like that at all. And when you tell them of the I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. When you tell them of the bribes the French are paying to attract business to France, the Germans do not like it. So, so that's also another interesting thing. 
And then, Martin, you you buy that optimism. You think there are genuine reasons to be positive about the outlook for, for the city. I guess so. I have become quite used to going to Brexit events and Brexit debates in the past uh, couple of years since the uh, referendum vote and particularly since the Article 50 process was triggered. Many of them focused on the financial services aspects of the UK's departure from the EU and many of them pretty gloomy, really. So yesterday's rays of sunshine and optimism were a welcome relief from that. And I think it's interesting that you're starting to see some more optimism in this area. So I would pick on three particular reasons to be cheerful uh, in the City of London about Brexit. Um, The first... As Mark Hoban mentioned, if you'd said to people a year ago that, you know, the, the, the progress that we'd made on transition period, a commitment to transition period, the UK government falling into line with the city's desire for, for it to seek uh, a mutual recognition arrangement uh, on financial services to maintain access to the EU from from London, uh, then people you know would have looked at you as if you were mad. So there's been a lot of progress. And also people think now that a deal on financial services as part of a free trade deal is is not beyond the realms of possibility, whether we'll get everything we want. Um, but I think we're starting to sort of see the two sides come together. The UK wants this mutual recognition deal. The EU's saying, no, no, it's got to be equivalence. But could there be, could those, those two sides meet eventually in the middle somewhere? Possibly. Secondly, the you know there was a lot of talk about how the eu member states are approaching this negotiation and how they've been very united up to now um in taking a tough stance with the uk but there's some hope that they're starting to see some chinks in their armor um particularly with the increasingly uh, overt competition between the different countries to win business from the UK. And I thought it was interesting that that Baroness uh, Faulkner talked about how the Germans, when you tell the Germans of the bribes that the French are paying to attract business to France, the Germans don't like it. And she she talked about uh, 10 European countries that now think Brussels is being too hard on the UK. So that was quite interesting. You're starting to see uh, uh, some splits there. And that's another reason why perhaps the UK might think um, it's not going to end up such a bad deal and for financial services. And finally, what do the public think? And this could be important because there's a lot of people in the city of London who would quite like there to be a second referendum. And there was at this uh, conference this week, uh, Deborah Mattinson, uh, founding partner of Britain Thinks, the research group who talked about uh, their project of having 100 people keep diaries on on Brexit and how their thoughts have shifted. And they've shifted more in favour of a second referendum and also become very gloomy about how the negotiations are progressing. And that is giving some people hope that they could at some point potentially be uh, another vote or a rethink on on the whole thing. Although, interestingly, she uh, was careful to say if you call it a second referendum, then it wouldn't be popular. If you call it a vote on the deal, on the proposed deal, then it would be... Yeah, seven um, out of ten would favour a vote on the deal itself. The question is then what happens if they 
they vote down the deal and there's only a few months left before we're due to exit the EU, is there a way of then deciding we actually want to stay or do we just end up crashing out and having the worst of all worlds with a kind of cliff edge exit? But, I mean, even Hillary Benn, the uh, Labour chair of the House of Commons Brexit Committee, said, you know, that he's, he's not entirely convinced that if we did have another vote, it would produce a different result. But if public opinion did start to change, then as an elected politician, they would have to respond to that. So reasons why uh, for hope in, in the City of London would, would include those things, I, I would say. Also interesting that um, this research project found that people think whilst they're going to do badly from Brexit and it's, the negotiations are not going well, the one group they think will do well from it is business, uh, both small businesses that will be freed from red tape and big businesses that are well equipped to capitalise on the opportunities thrown up. So perhaps not so bad for the City of London after all. Let's hope you're right. Let's go over for our final segment now to New York, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Ken Reese. Now, Mr. Reese is the head of the subprime lender Elevate, which went public a year ago and seems to be doing rather well. Ken Reese, CEO of Elevate, thank you very much for joining me. Last time I checked in on your stock price, it was pretty flat uh, from about 12 months ago. What, what, what does that tell us about the prospects? Well, hopefully it doesn't tell you much about the prospects because we think the prospects are terrific. When we went public April of last year, uh, we pretty much delivered on what we said. Strong top line growth from 16% last year, expanding margins. Our margins went up from 10% to 13%, incredibly stable credit quality. And we really still think we're just getting started. We're projecting even more growth this year, 20% top line growth, continued expansion in margins, and a lot of bottom line growth, 3x the uh, earnings per share that we did in 2017. Not a whole lot of companies that are showing that growth. And if you go back even further, you know, in uh, 2013, we were only a $73 million company from a revenue perspective. This mm-hmm. year, we'll do about $800 million. Yeah. So what are the real drivers then? Who are these people that are in need of an installment loan from Elevate? So we serve what we call non-prime consumers, consumers that either have a less than 700 credit score or no credit score at all. But what most people don't realize is there are twice as many Americans with a non-prime credit score than prime. Mm-hmm. So 160 million Americans, they're looking for better forms of credit. In the past, maybe banks served them, but banks no longer do that. They've largely pushed them out of the banking system. Following the recession, there was a real push to get banks to no longer take on subprime customers. And so mm-hmm. that really, in a lot of ways, fueled the growth of a lot of predatory lenders like petty lenders and title lenders and created this, what we think is a huge opportunity to give customers better, more responsible forms of credit, more convenient credit. And ultimately, we think there's also an interesting opportunity to part with banks to get banks back into the business of saying yes again to their customers. How is Elevate more responsible? You've got three different big products, but briefly describe them and in what ways that they're better for the consumer than a payday loan. Yeah, so we have two products in the U.S., Rise, which is a state-originated installment loan product, uh, Elastic, which is a bank-originated uh, line of credit product, and an uh, installment loan product in the U.K. called Sunny. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's unique about all those products is this commitment to what we call good today, better tomorrow. So we want the rates to be cheaper than the real-world alternatives that our customers have when they get their immediate need for credit fulfilled, but also we've got this commitment to improving their credit health and overall financial wellness over time. So on the first side, on the good today, we believe we've saved our customers over $3 billion over what they would have spent on payday loans. But we've also had a meaningful impact on the 
financial health of our customers by reporting credit bureaus, mm-hmm. by providing free financial literacy tools, free credit monitoring tools. Uh, we've now seen you know, north of 140,000 customers that have seen an appreciable improvement in their credit scores. That's not all of our customers. We've got to do more, but we're starting to make a difference, and it's what really drives us. Okay. Some of the growth has happened, as you say, while the big banks have been focused elsewhere on repairing their balance sheets, on repairing relations with regulators. As those improve on all fronts, um, are you now worried that uh, the banks are back into your, your territory? We're hoping they do, and we're really encouraged by statements by the new controller of the currency, Joseph Odding, who mm-hmm. said, essentially, banks, you've been saying no to your customers for too long. It's time for you to think about new products and new ways to serve. I think he recognized that there aren't any easy alternatives, and he said, uh, essentially, come to me with innovative ideas, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. But that's very different from the world uh, even just a year ago where banks really struggled to to get any approval for new ideas, new products. And uh, hopefully this is a world where banks will start being able to to rethink their product offerings. Now, I don't think banks can do it on their own. I mean, banks aren't exactly known for a fast experience. Our customers need to have an instant decision and they need to have their money as soon as possible. That's not the world of typical banking. So bankers are going to have to work with fintech providers to get the sort of instant decisioning, the instant funding that we offer. And just as importantly in our world, underwriting the non-prime customer is quite a bit different from a prime customer. FICO scores don't really work. So uh, I think also that's an area that banks are going to want to partner with fintech providers such as Elevate to come up with new solutions. Let's talk about the regulatory landscape, which has radically changed, as we all know, Mm. uh, since the election just over a year ago now. There's lots of different heads of regulatory agencies. I suppose the main influence for your part of the world is the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau which has undergone, I think, the most extreme regime change of all. Uh, How is it affecting your outlook? You're you're exactly right, Ben. You know, at the end of the year when uh, Director Cordray was in charge, uh, the consumer advocates uh, uh, were really high-fiving each other about the death of payday lending, and the the industry was, uh, you know, uh, already trying to figure out what they were going to do and and really struggling for any good news. Now with Mulvaney in charge, he said that he's going to reevaluate those rules, the payday rules that... uh, uh, have been announced under Cordray. And and now there's sort of this flip-flop that maybe the industry thinks it'll be back to the wild, wild west, and uh, the consumer group's concerned that there's no longer going to be any federal oversight. Yeah. I, I think both sides are wrong on this one. I, I do think the CFPB, there's a lot of institutional momentum around those rules. They may get modified somewhat. I, I think they'll ultimately get rolled out. And at the end of the day, you do have you know hundreds of people in the CFPB that are all about ensuring you know better enforcement around unfair and deceptive practices and in the space so definitely it's a new regime i've met with a lot of the people at the cfpb and the policy area in particular and i think they're still thinking about the policy issues for our space in the right way which is how do you you know limit the uh, negatives around products like payday loans and title loans where i think they could do a better job and i'm hoping under milvaney that happens is not just the regulation but a focus on innovation because at the end of the day getting rid of bad products isn't going to fix the problem we got to find a way to get more good products out there and the cfpb had this idea of a no action letter that they would they would grant to people to help people innovate. They've only granted one and it took a year to get it. So maybe under Mulvaney, things will move a little faster and we'll see more fintech innovation that provides better products, not just less bad products. Okay. You mentioned the OCC earlier as well, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, which is under Joseph Otting, uh, a former banker. 
Now he's rescinded um, in your part of the world the the the, the guidance of 2013 on on deposit advance products. Uh, what, what what do you make of that? Is is it a boost potentially to your business? I think he's really trying to send the signal that he wants banks to think about how to serve customers that they pushed out of the banking system. Now, I don't tend to like that product, and not everyone knows what the bank direct deposit advance product. Describe what it is. There's a number of large banks that offer this product, Wells Fargo, Fifth Third, and some others. And if you had a direct deposit on your checking account, you could get an advance on that for 10%. But if the bank ever saw funds in your checking account, they'd sweep it out. So on average, you only get those funds for nine days. There really wasn't any underwriting. There wasn't credit bureau reporting. It was sort of a dead-end product, very much like a payday loan. Sounds so, as if there's little risk to the lender, too. Very little risk to the lender, but a lot of risk to the customer because they could really lose control of their bank account because of this product. So it, it's the right idea that banks serve this customer, but it's time for more innovation, more focus on really creating products that work for customers. Ken Reese, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Ben. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio and Ben in New York, along with his guest. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by David Blood and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>